you're listening to Thunder Quack Podcast Network. Hi, this is Ralph Macchio, and you are listening to the Epic Marvel Podcast. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Epic Marvel Podcast. This is our episode for Fantastic Four Volume 20, Into the Time Stream, and I am your host, Curtis Findley. And I'm your Fantastic Four host, Eric Findley. In this episode, we will be covering a period of Fantastic Four from 1989 to 1990. Um, This is the beginning of Walt Simonson's run. And Eric, can you tell us what are we going to be talking about in uh, in this episode? Uh, Well, this covers Fantastic Four uh, numbers 334 to 346, as well as um, the annual number 23, and uh, because of a crossover, New Mutants annual number 6, X-Factor annual number 5, X-Men annual um, number 14, and some extra material. Right. Just before we get into the episode, I want to thank everyone who is a Patreon supporter. We thank you for your support. Uh, If you want to uh, become a supporter as well to help keep this podcast running, you can head over to patreon.com slash thunderquack. And over there, there are a bunch of little goodies, extra exclusive podcast um, episodes and and some interviews that you can listen to um, because we appreciate your support. Uh, This episode is going to have some interview clips from Ralph Macchio, who was the editor during this time. I really wanted to get um, Walt Simonson, um, but I couldn't get a hold of him to talk about uh, his work on Here in Time, so perhaps a future uh, future episode we'll, um, we'll be able to talk to Walt. So tell me, Eric, what do we need to know before we jump into this volume? First of all, it's the late 80s, early 90s. This is a time of pouches and zippers, and big hair and even bigger guns. And that shows up here. <laughs> it sure uh, does. And it doesn't normally show up in the Fantastic Four, but this is one of the, the rare cases where it does. And it has a purpose, though. Oh, totally. So totally. It's, it's not like, um, like let's say, Cable or, or you know, the guys who just show off as big guns as they can. Right, right. Um, uh, there are a couple things to know. First of all, um, Reed and Sue have just recently returned to the team from being on the Avengers. Um they took a break to try and live sort of more of a normal life and it didn't really suit them and so they've come back um that happened in um may of 1989 and this volume starts at december um other things to note ben Grimm is human again this happened just after reed and sue came back um Ben stumbled into some sort of cosmic ray machine and it turned him back into um, his human form. Um, Also, uh, as we saw in the Thing ongoing series, Sharon Ventura has started mutating to become, um, uh, have an appearance like the Thing, and she goes by the name Miss Marvel. Well, this happened through the Steve Englehart run on Fantastic Four as well. Yeah. Yeah, And so like, both of those, the Steve Englehart's run yeah. and the thing were kind of happening side by side. At the same time, side. right. Um, so she also kind of goes by She-Thing 
Um, yep. They sort of change up how she's called in different issues, depending on who says it, really. Um, she had the opportunity to become a human again, but she chose to remain the thing, um, uh, or the she thing, because it gave her a sense of power and security, which is helping her cope with the reality of being raped by the power broker's henchmen. Um, and that shows up here a couple of times, um, how that's, yeah. that, that's causing her insecurity as a woman and how she's sort of coming to terms with that. We talk a lot about that in the other Fantastic Four episode, mm -hmm. um, All in the Family, because that's where a lot of that really comes to a head, uh, where she first is dealing with this. And this is a couple volumes later, right. so she's um, a little bit more settled in. Right. Yeah. Um, so Ben and Sharon are in a relationship right now. Um, and then just a couple of uh, story-related things. Um, the first part of this volume is part of the Acts of Vengeance, where uh, supervillains team up and they agree to try to take out each other's hero since they've failed so many times at it, they think, well, maybe the other person will have more of a, more of a shot. Um, so that's why we see a bunch of villains that we don't normally see in this. Also, we see uh, this group called the Council of Cross-Time Kangs. And there are a bunch of creatures from across time and space who have sort of banded together in the image of Kang. Um, they are not authorized or put into authority by Kang at all, but they've all sort of seen him or encountered him at some point, uh, mostly through a Kang robot, similar to like a Doombot. So he keeps his control over time and space by putting in robot duplicates. They've defeated these and taken the armor for themselves. And they use that to monitor and sort of interfere with time. Huh. Okay. Yeah. They don't last very long, though. This is sort of the first place we see them, and then they're destroyed a few years later by the real Kang in a miniseries called The Terminatrix Objective. Uh, okay, so let's talk about this epic collection in general. What what are your impressions on the the, the content, the quality, just uh, this this whole package? I really like the lettering in this volume. Um, the layout, um, which I guess would be the artist, but the layout and the sequence of the speech bubbles as well um, is is really neat because modern comics tend to have several small panels, and you can only put maybe one or two speech bubbles in them. Um, and that just makes every conversation more drawn out. Uh, a lot of newer comics, the story doesn't progress very far in one issue because they take so long to say anything. But here, because of the way that the, uh, the, the lettering has been done, the speech bubbles have been laid out, you have a full conversation in one panel. And it's clear who's speaking and um, what order the, the phrases go in. Uh, and um, uh, the, just the flow of the conversation, yeah. I really like the the restoration in this. I think that um, the team who did the restoration did a really great job with um, getting these back to the original colors, um, they, especially like the um, the scenes with the Sentinel and anything. I mean, um, Celestials. Yeah. Anything with Walt Simonson's art really stands mm -hmm. out, and especially the color choices that have been made in this book. They're they're pretty dramatic in in some cases. Yeah. But they there there are a few coloring issues that I noticed, um, and I'm not sure if those were 
in the original or not. Um, but just things like uh, people's hair color and oh, okay, that, yeah. One thing that I didn't like about this um, is, and this is just a um, an unfortunate side effect of the format, is that um, because these are bound books, um, some of the art, some of the uh, yeah. uh, the words are in the fold. Yeah, they get lost in the gutter. Yeah, and and that's because. Um, the art in this, the, there's quite a bit of art that is cross-page, um, where the flow goes across the two pages and supposed to down one page and then down the other, uh, which I really like. I really like that um, that format. But when you collect it like this in a book with a spine, then you lose quite a bit. Um, also, generally, the speech bubbles tend to stay around the edge of the uh, of the of the um, frame, and then when you get uh, panels that are on the edge of the page right near the um, near the spine you get the same kind of thing no one would have ever guessed at this point oh, that yeah, we no. would be reading ish, um you know, 500 page collections or those like thousand page omnibus collections oh yeah and yeah when when people were doing the art for these ones uh, and doing a double page spread they fully realized that a 22-page comic would lay completely flat and you wouldn't lose anything. Right. And I wonder if, yeah. if that's why they don't do this style of speech bubble anymore where they have it wrapping around the sides so they can fill up as, um, get as much text in there as possible. Um, if they're thinking, oh, well, you yeah. know, we're going to put this in a collection later. I think there are, there's some of that. Um, I think Bendis, he loves speech bubbles and um, he still does stuff like yeah. that. Well, yeah, um, he's one of the few. And I remember reading there was an issue of um, Superior Spider-Man where the Doc Ock Spider-Man unveils his new, his brand new costume and his double-page spread, and Spider-Man is smack dab in the middle, mm. like over the, the page right. fold, which is fine when you're reading a comic, but when you... So I read it in a trade... And you can't see any of the brand new costume because it's completely lost in the gutter. So yeah, there people still aren't uh, they aren't thinking about the um, the implications later on down right. the road. Um, one last thing that I noticed is that the New Mutants annual and X Factor annual are actually in the reversed order. Yes, I was going to bring that up too. Yeah. yeah, and I don't really know why because the X Factor annual actually came out before the New Mutants one, and it's also labeled as Part Two versus Part Three. So there was a shipping issue. Um, they knew that one of them wasn't going to meet the deadline, and so they decided to just keep the other one on schedule. Right. And but give it the um, but give it the 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 new numbering number oh, okay. two, even though it's part technically Part Three. Well. When you go and you read it, it really doesn't make that much of a difference. No, because the team splits at that point. Right. And so one well, issue is following that's... one side and the other issue is following the other side. And, they and that's come only back part of it, but we'll get to that later, I yes, guess. Yes, exactly. Yeah, we'll discuss that later. Just before we get into the episode, we have a couple of reader comments. Um, on Facebook, our friend Josh said, uh, the Walt Simonson era of Fantastic Four, though much shorter than his acclaimed Thor run, it still should be considered just as classic. Not every writer truly gets the FF, and often the tamer, dare I say, boring stories are when they are written as superheroes. Walt doesn't do that here. They are written as adventurers, as they should be. 
read super crazy science sending them through time with iron man and thor with what a ride celestials galactus a dinosaur island an alternate timeline with president dan quayle <laughs> laugh out loud um awesome hard to put the book down i really want volume 21 to finish walt's run the only downside to this for me personally is that the era this is the era of the very uncomfortable marriage of johnny and alicia man i hated that felt so wrong both as it was his best friend's best friend's girl and she is supposedly almost identical to johnny's sister um awful uh let's see i also tried twice to read days of future present and <laughs> failed i could not get through it i think it just felt way too 90s for my liking but those are minor gripes to an outstanding chunk of solid fantastic four i 100 percent agree with his first part of his comment um there are not very many writers that and i've been saying this for years um that understand the fantastic four really well about what they're about and that's um family relationships and uh dynamics it's about um character growth and development and science and exploration it's not about fighting and i as a big fan of the fantastic four didn't really mind the 2005 Fantastic Four movie because I felt it captured a lot of that and a lot of the, the comments that I heard against it um, aside from you know the fake looking hair and yeah. uh, um, some of the acting issues um, th one of the biggest comments uh, negative comments that I heard about it was oh the fight with Dr. Doom was too short and I was thinking well yeah that's how it always is they, they're not about the big drawn out fight like the Avengers right? Um, the Fantastic Four don't get into these types of, of wars and battles. Neither does Doctor Doom. No, neither does Doctor Doom. Yeah. Um, you know, he waits until he's ready to strike and then he strikes. And, and it's short and quick. Yeah. And the Fantastic Four, they quickly formulate a plan because they know each other so well and, and they execute the plan. And it's the journey, the story is the journey getting to that point where they can defeat the enemy really quickly. Um, so I, I, I really uh, agree with that. And we're about to exit the period where we have that because once you get into sort of the late 90s, early 2000s, you get a lot of the writers who want to turn the Fantastic Four into an Avengers and um, start to have more of those um, big epic battle type things. And it's not until... Um, Jonathan Hickman comes on in, you know, uh, whenever that run started, 2014 or 15, that um, that you really start to see this um, emphasis on scientific exploration and adventure come back. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's very true. And there, and you still have some really acclaimed writers during that time. Oh, totally. Chris and Claremont yeah. and Mark and Wade. And they're not bad stories, but they don't quite feel right. Yeah. Well, um, if the epic collection stretches to those points, then we'll cover those episodes oh, too and see where people went right and people went wrong. Right. Um, I'd say that this uh, this volume it does have a nice emphasis on scientific exploration, mm -hmm. but out of necessity rather than exploration. Right. It's because all of a sudden there's a black hole and they have to go and solve that before the world's destroyed. They're not right. going out there because they want to take a look at the black hole. They're yeah. going there because no one else has the ability to actually fix the, the problem. Yeah. Um, in Matt Fraction's uh, Fantastic Four run, you have them exploring for the sake of adventure. 
Right. Um, they're like, okay, we need to take a break. Um, let's go and explore the multiverse and all through time and we'll make it a educational trip for our kids and everything. And so they're choosing to do that. And of course, things happen along the way. Yep. And here, it's very much forced upon them. Yeah. About the relationship with Johnny and Alicia, um, I sort of agree. On the one hand, I don't find it personally uncomfortable that um, that he married his best friend's you know, girlfriend because at the time they thought he was dead. Um, and then when he comes back, what are you going to do? Right. And at this point in the in the story, they've moved past oh, that. Oh, totally. The yeah. awkward part was in a previous Fantastic Four right. episode that we recorded. Where he just comes family, back. Where, yeah, and they really hash it out. They really do have an issue yeah. with each other. And uh, and they work they work it out and Ben has to come to to accept it and the thing that makes this volume different is that he's got a girlfriend now right so he's he actually is able to move past that right the other awkward part in in the Johnny Alicia relationship comes in a few issues when the big secret is revealed and <laughs> yeah. and and all of a sudden he doesn't know how he feels about her anymore yeah and then it becomes awkward again but I think in this period right now. Um, with the exception of one issue where we'll talk about that, um, or, you know, there's, it's actually not that bad. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I'm looking forward to that when Johnny and Alicia's marriage comes into question there. That's probably volume 22 or 23. Right. Yeah. That'll be a good one. That, that actual issue is, was my very first Fantastic Four comic. So you like open it up and that's like the big reveal right there, the yeah. first page. And you're like, what's going on? Well, you have no idea of the history no, or anything. Right, so but that's interesting. it was so interesting. We have another reader comment. This one comes to us from the Marvel Masterworks forum. Uh, Strider Tag, he goes by the name Strider Tag. He says, I've read Walt Simonson's run in the three visionaries trades that were mm -hmm. released some time ago. And one word to describe this run, fun. The first arc, which is a tie-in to the Axe Avengers crossover, had some depth to it. A superhero registration um, was on talk way before Civil War, and Reed Richards was against this registration. Mm -hmm. However, things get unnecessarily complicated at, uh, at times during the second arc into the time stream. The one-shot with Rusty Collins felt like a poor man's version of the one-shot by John Byrne during Secret Wars 2, where the boy set himself on fire. Yeah. And finally, the next two arcs, Nuke Busters... And the one with the Jurassic Island bring the fun back again. Overall, very good volume. Right. And I'm assuming that in this one, he didn't read the Days of Future Present because no, they're those not wouldn't in have the been... Visionaries. Right. But... Um, and we'll talk about... Um, I'll save some of my comments about the individual issues until we get yeah, there. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. We also had a Twitter poll. And uh, for those of you who voted in, um, I asked the question, what is your favorite part of the Fantastic Four epic collection Into the Time Stream? Your choices were Acts of Vengeance, Into the Time Stream, Mesozoic Mambo, and Days of Future Present. And I really should have coupled Nukebusters with Mesozoic Mambo. I right. just totally forgot to include those that one in there. But anyway, 0% of the votes went to Mesozoic Mambo. Which really? I, I kind of like that story, but... Uh, maybe it wasn't people's it's, favorites. It's a little out of place, but it's not terrible. And then 9% voted for Acts of Vengeance. 36% of the votes went to Days of Future Present. And then 55% of the vote went to the main story into the time stream. The 36% for the Days of Future Present actually surprises me. Yeah, <laughs> me too. Anyway, let's. Uh, what is your top, uh, top story here? Um... It's a tie between the Into the Time Stream 
and the uh, Acts of Vengeance for different reasons. Um, I like the Acts of Vengeance because it deals with the superhuman registration. And this is only really because now that we've seen Civil War, that sort of sparks my interest. Right. Um, the Into the Time Stream, like, I... I love it anytime the Fantastic Four travel through time. Yeah. And um, like I said, this ties into the mini, or not ties into, I'll, I'll address that a little later, but it links to the uh, Avengers miniseries Terminatrix Objective, um, which I really enjoyed. And uh, seeing the link between that and this is really neat. Um, how the story sort of, this is sort of the starting um, that sets up what that becomes. Oh, cool. I'm going to say that my favorite is probably Mesozoic Mambo. I'm going to give that one, even though no one else liked that one as their favorite, I'm going to give that one my favorite. Hmm. And I'm going to couple it with Nuke Busters. Right. Because there is just some odd, bizarre things, and I really like the the direction that that goes. <laughs> <laughs> it's very strange. Yep. Well, here's an interesting thing. Um, again, you know, in, in, in comics, you're, you're friends with an awful lot of people. And um, it was Mark Grunewald who had the brilliant idea to put Walt on Thor. I wish I had been the guy to think of it. Um, but it was a, it was a masterstroke because Walt, you know, his favorite comics character, if I remember right, was Thor. I mean, he always said that, you know, when he was growing up, um, you know, he had a few favorites. And Thor was right at the top of his list. He was very much into the whole Norse mythology thing. Uh, and I think he said he'd even, as a as a high school student or, or whatever, had actually sort of written out that entire Surtur saga, um, had had sort of already plotted it out, you know. So that was a fascinating thing. But what happened was we, um, you know, it was it was time to make a change in Fantastic Four, and I was at Chris Claremont's house out in Brooklyn, and uh, it was a little party, a little get together. Chris and I also very very good friends for many years. And Walt was there. And I talked to Walt about taking over Fantastic Four. I thought, you know, I think Walt has just got so much to give on these books. Um, you know, I was so pleased to have been able to work with Walt for the better part of his run, even though Mark put him on Thor. I think I was on working with him on Thor for uh, an even longer period than Mark did. Um, and I said, you know, this is a guy, if there's one guy who could write Reed Richards, who would get the science, it's Walt, because Walt has is, is got a wide-ranging intellect. He's also a fantastic writer. He's a great illustrator. I mean, this is a guy, if you want to bring all this energy to Fantastic Four, this is the guy to do it. So I mentioned it to Walt, and he right away started throwing ideas at me. And we wound up talking for about an hour at Chris Claremont's house about Fantastic Four. And at that time also, um, what happened was, Walt was, was going to come on the book but we had to do, he was going to come on both as the writer and as the penciler, which I loved. But we had several issues to do first that Walt had to write um, because we were in the midst of a crossover. Um, right, Acts of Vengeance. At that point. Acts of Vengeance, exactly. Yep. So we had to play around with that for several issues before Walt could actually jump on as the writer penciler. And I think he came on, remember, I think it was 337 was when he started as both the writer and artist, and we began that whole um, storyline with the Celestials and the, the, the future stuff that we went into, and it was just perfect. 
So let's jump into the very first issue in this collection. It's number 334. It's called Shadows of Alarm. And in this one, the Fantastic Four prepare for a trip to Washington, D.C. to discuss the Superhero Registration Act. But they're interrupted by many villains trying to break in. Um, and break into the Four Freedoms Plaza, right? That's where right. they are right here? Yes. Yeah. Um, that was first introduced in the first issue from the All in the Family. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, they're still here. So this one is the very first one written by Walt Simonson, but it has art by Rich Buckler. He's not, Walt isn't the artist yet. Um, the late Rich Buckler, who just passed away a couple months ago. Mm -hmm. In this issue, like you said, this is the first part of the Fantastic Four portion of Acts of Vengeance. If you've been listening to this podcast, um, we talked about all of the Spider-Man related Acts of Vengeance issues in the in the Cosmic Adventures episode of um, of Spider-Man. And the thing about this one is we don't get any conclusion to Acts of Vengeance in this story at all. Um, in fact, the FF don't even know that Acts of Vengeance is happening, really. It's kind of briefly hinted at by one of the villains. Um but uh yeah it's and and you don't see any big villains no because like, um, in, in the spider-man issues you actually get a, a few cutaway scenes where yeah. all of the big group like kingpin dr right. doom and magneto they're all sitting around a table and discussing but yeah. you don't get any of that in this and in this. and spider-man fights magneto right yeah and here you just get a bunch of no-name villains right um so one thing um, I wanted to mention is the just the villains that they fight are right. um, the Constrictor, Beetle, and Shocker. And um, they make a reference to uh, Human Torch's Strange Tales days because um, the Beetle is, at this period, he's kind of a Spider-Man villain. Yeah. But Beetle first appeared in an issue of Strange Tales, which was at that time Human Torch's solo book. Right. Um, and so Johnny says, I think I remember him from way back when. Yeah. And I thought that was, um, it, it's kind of ambiguous what they mean. It could be um, Strange Tales 123 where the beetle appears and he fights him with the thing. But um, Human Torch also fights him again um, in Marvel Tales number 16 with Spider-Man, which is um, a few years later. So uh, 1964 for the Strange Tales and 1968 for the Marvel Tales. Hmm. Okay. So I don't. They're they're, they're close enough together that you know it could be either of them that they're referencing. But uh, the point right. is, it's a long time. I really like um, how they approach the the Superhuman Registration Act here, um, especially looking at it in the light of having read Civil War. Yeah. So the Mutant uh, Registration Act is already in effect here, um, actually has been for several years. Um, and this failed attempt at a Superhuman Registration Act actually sort of lays the seeds for um, the new one for Civil War, which happens in after M-Day in 2006. Um, and I wonder how much the writers of Civil War actually looked at this, because um, as we'll talk about in a couple issues, a lot of the arguments made are arguments and points that are brought up in Civil War in 2006. Yeah. I also found it really interesting and surprising that um, that they mention the Michael Keaton Batman movie specifically. <laughs> I was going to mention that too. Yeah. <clears throat> it's, yep. it's odd for Marvel to make a DC reference like that. Well, I think they Marvel is making DC reference to show that DC is the fake 
superheroes right. in this world where Marvel heroes are the real heroes right, or something yeah. like that. Right? Well, also I found in this entire volume, there are a lot of cultural references. And I think they're trying to do that to appeal to the public, um, like the readers. But what it actually accomplishes in the long run is dating the comic. And I find that they try to stay away from that a little more. Oh, no, uh, no, they don't. They still have like people texting <clears throat> or talking on Twitter. And in 50 years, will Twitter well, still oh, exist? Okay. I, I, right? I guess, I guess. But um, like some of the, the name dropping, there's a lot of like Star Wars references. Point, right. and, and Star Wars is fairly, you know, and that's just point and... part of pop culture. And I people, guess. you look at like <clears throat> old Looney Tunes and they're, um, there are so many pop culture references in old Looney Tunes that we have no idea what they mean because yeah. they are so dated. But you just kind of gloss over them because you don't understand them anymore. There's the episode High Diving Hair where Bugs Bunny is fighting Yosemite Sam on a high diving board. Mm -hmm. And at one point, Bugs Bunny puts up a, a fake door um, on the diving board so Yosemite Sam can't get in. He bangs on the door and he says, open that door. And then he looks to the audience and he says... You notice I didn't say Richard. It's like who knows what that <laughs> means at all. It, I had to Google it, and apparently there was a song that was popular at the time called "Open the Door, Richard," and hmm. it became the fact that whenever anyone said "Open the Door," people would start singing that song. Right, and so it was a joke. But and that that maybe ten years or twenty years right. after would date it. But we're so far removed from that now that no one ever even remembers that song. Right. So it's it's just something you you don't you just kind of right. move past it. Something like the Batman Keaton, mm -hmm. um, that was definitely popular at the time because this was 1989. Right. And that kind of thing, I think, will date the book, but not in a bad way. I think the big pockets, the large guns, the big hair, <laughs> that dates the right. book more than those kind of cultural references. Right. Um, one thing that uh, Sharon says in, in reference to the Beatle is, um, is he some kind of holdover from the 60s? And it's true because... there's uh, That's the Strange Tales reference. Well, well, maybe. But I'm thinking maybe more is it an attempt to make a joke um, referencing the Beatles band? <laughs> uh, and it, it, if it is, it fails because in text there's a spelling difference. Yeah. But... Um, uh, no, I think it's pretty... I'm pretty sure it's a Strange Tales reference. Okay. It's got to be. Hmm. But that... Mm, yeah, it doesn't really fit with the the in comic timeline though, because um, like they they <laughs> no, wouldn't, it, for sure. it wouldn't have been the sixties. It's you know it's like ten years ago or something like that. Right. There in also in a in an issue of Strange Tales, um, the thing dresses up like a beetle with a, like a beetle style haircut, right, and sneaks in to meet the beetles. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like it, yeah, the time the timeline's a little different, but that's the kind of thing where it's just a nod to the audience, right? Yeah. There's a reference on page twenty six to the fake Fantastic Four, and that is just a reference to the very end of Steve Englehart's mm -hmm. run, where he had um, made a, a fake FF. They were doppelgangers that took over FF for a little while, right. uh, while the other FF were kind of yeah. in a suspended animation thanks to a rogue watcher. But you can hear about that in volume nineteen whenever we get around to recording that one. Yeah, that's that's an interesting time as well. Yes. And, <laughs> um, and actually, it's it comes up a little bit here because they did some 
pretty significant damage um, to the Fantastic Four brand. Yeah, yeah, to their credibility and yeah. stuff. And that actually does come into play when they're talking to the council, council about about the Registration Act. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's actually a good point. So the next issue is 335. And in this issue, uh, the Fantastic Four appear before the council that is supposed to um, be hearing opinions on the Superhuman Registration Act, and they will eventually make a decision whether to um, uh, to go through with it or not. And they are interrupted by a few villains. Can you name them all? <laughs> um, I made a note of them all. Yeah, I wrote there, them all down. There were some obscure ones here. Yes. Um, but just before we do that, um, we end off with uh, with the Fantastic Four finding the source of these villains, um, but then being accused of setting up this entire thing as a charade to try <laughs> and uh, undermine the Superhuman Registration Act. Right. Uh, so which of these villains did you recognize without having to look them up? <laughs> Thunderball is the easiest one for yeah. me because he's still fairly prominent in the Wrecking Crew. Thunderball and Eel yep. uh, were, uh, I think, the only ones. Yeah, and the other ones I recognized after I looked them up. I'm like, oh, yeah, of course that's who that is. So right. we also have Ramrod. These are here's the in the order in which they appear. Ramrod, Plantman, Quill, Flying Tiger, Vanisher, Thunderball, the Eel... And Mad Dog. I know the Vanisher, but I only really know his newer costumes. I didn't recognize his costume from this period. Right. Yeah, a lot of them have changed over the years for sure. Um, Plant Man is another character that first appeared in the Human Torch Strange Tales issues. So we have another one that um, that goes way back. Mm -hmm. And then, um, and Mad Dog is not the DC hero that's in Arrow right, right now. <laughs> Yeah, these guys are just really obscure. So in this one, we get Henry Gyrick. Yep. He appears in this one, and he's kind of uh, the one who's really pushing for the Registration Act. And he's uh, he's the one who, um, well, he first appeared to try and start the Mutant Registration Act. Right. But then he kind of took over the Avengers in the 70s. Right. Um, it was, uh, if I remember correctly, sort of decided that the Avengers would work better if they had some government oversight. Yeah. And... Uh, they reference it here that he essentially, um, what, what's the phrase that they use all the time here? Hamstring. Yeah. <laughs> Hamstring the Avengers and um, really just makes them unable to operate efficiently. And that's evidence used against the Superhuman Registration Act. Right. Yeah. His own meddling did that. Um, I, was, uh, I was surprised that this one is pretty much a talking issue. Yeah. There's not much that goes on. Um, and these are such like D-list characters, the villains, that uh, yeah, they're, they, they're defeated easily. Yeah, it's not really a battle or anything like that. Um, they don't even make a big deal about it. And uh, but, other, but otherwise, it actually, if you actually take the time to read it all, it's very compelling. Oh, because yes. Because there's very interesting arguments. Mm -hmm. Also in this, we have a reference to... X-Factor and the Avengers both not being available for comment. Right. And the X-Factor right now, uh, they're in space, kidnapped by Celestials. Oh. Um, and uh, like they're, the ship that they live in is was created by Celestials um, and as sort of a watchtower 
over Earth to like report on things happening. And so they reclaim their ship and X-Factor's on it. So they're in space right now. And the Avengers, they can't get a hold of the Avengers because they're actually kind of homeless right now. Ah. <laughs> um, they, the Avenger mansion was destroyed um, a couple years before. And so they moved on to um, Hydro Base, which was the um, headquarters of one of their villains, but they repurposed it. Um, and so it's like a floating island base. And in the uh, most recent issue of Avengers at this time, that base is also destroyed, huh. which is why actually in the last issue, um, right after the Fantastic Four leave, um, Thor and Captain America come to the Four Freedoms Plaza to talk to them. Right. And the reason is because in the one issue between where the Avengers Mansion is destroyed and where they set up Hydro Base, they actually take up temporary offices in the uh, Four Freedoms Plaza. Nice. So they're hoping to do that again, but then the security system's on and um, Fantastic Four gone. One other thing that's not really mentioned is, um, or resolved in this is the flyby of Apocalypse. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and it turns out that Apocalypse is actually noticing that there's some unusual supervillain activity going on. And he's sort of going around the world trying to figure out what's going on. And... Because um, he wasn't invited to the no, big bad... <laughs> exactly. He wasn't invited. <laughs> Into the round and, table there. And so he actually, um, in, again, uh, the same month, uh, the issue of X Factor, um, there's sort of dealing with X-Factor in space and Apocalypse on Earth. Apocalypse finds out who's behind the acts of vengeance. And uh, before he can do anything, that person approaches him and offers him a seat. Oh, okay. Oh, that's yeah. so funny. Uh, I look forward to that, that uh, X-Factor volume then. Issue number 336 is called Dark Congress. And in this one, um, as Eric mentioned, in, at the end of the last issue, they find the device that's controlling people's minds and uh, and they deal with it. And we get a whole ton of other um, kind of little known superheroes or supervillains, um, which I'll list in a second. And then the device takes over Congress itself. And they try to destroy the Fantastic Four. <laughs> it's just this uh, this issue kind of goes into some bizarre places. Um, quite funny. They have a good sense of humor, which I like. Fantastic Four always has a good sense of humor. Yeah. Um, they like to keep things a little bit more light than other books go. Uh, and this this is a perfect example. I recognized a lot more of these villains. Who did you recognize? Um, Stiltman, Man Ape, Whirlwind, Orca. So, yep. uh -huh. Yeah, that was his name, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Armadillo. So, yeah, the only one you're missing there is the owl. Oh, and... right, the owl, because of his, uh, like, curly hair. Yeah, and yeah. Um, Baron Brimstone is also here, but... You don't see him. Yeah, really. he just kind of... I think... I don't know. I can't remember if he dies or something, but... No, he's, he gets he's taken like, out. on fire, and oh, so yeah, that's right. there's, like... You can see there's the, the sound effect crackle, pop, crackle, and some smoke in the corner, and you can see he's shadowy, but you don't actually <laughs> see him. So strange. So you only know he's there because Reed mentions it. Right. This issue is a Ron Lim, early Ron Lim art. And if you are very familiar with Ron Lim's style, this doesn't actually really look like his style. He changes, he he evolves quite a bit to uh, w w where we're more familiar with him, like say on Silver Surfer in the mid-90s. So cool to see him here. Mm -hmm. We forgot Hydro-Man. Hydro-Man and uh, Water 
dude. Oh, yeah. Hydro Man and Water Wizard are also there. Yeah. yeah. I didn't know Water Wizard, but I knew Hydro Man. Yeah, I had to look up Water Wizard. So at the end of this issue, um, the Fantastic Four track the device to Doctor Doom, and they have a kind of a battle, yeah. a little battle against him and the Super Adaptoid. Which and I thought was really weird because they get to the warehouse and Doom is just sitting there. Yeah. Like he was waiting for them the whole time. Because he knows. He'll, <laughs> he knows they'll figure it out. Oh, yeah. But we also get an ex- explanation of why people like Magneto didn't go up against the Fantastic Four. Because Doom wouldn't let them. Right. He only let the people go after Fantastic Four who he knew would fail. Because Doom has to be the one to take him down. Right. Only Doom. <laughs> He's the only one worthy of it. Yeah. Yeah. In this issue, we see uh, Sue playing the role of the diplomat. We have Reed, who gives a lot of really technical um, explanations, which is what he does best. But we see that Sue is more able to um, speak relationally um, in a way that other people can understand, but also she can appeal to emotion, which Reed can't necessarily do. And that, I think, in addition to all of Reed's comments, is what... um, uh, causes the council or uh, the uh, Congress to actually um, not go ahead with the registration act. Mm-hmm. Like all of all of Reed's evidence is spot on, but in addition, there's this human appeal. Um, what are your thoughts on Reed's position here versus Reed's position in Civil War? It's an interesting shift. Um, I personally like Reed's um, argument and position here better. I think it works a lot more. I was going to point out that um, uh, he he talks about the definition of mutant and superhuman, um, that this whole thing of registering, quote, superhumans is so vague that um, there's not going to really be any way to um, to enforce it well. And in fact, right now, there is a TV show hosted by Cal Penn, um, called superhuman and the concept is these are people who can do things that other people could potentially do but to a level that's much higher than other people Hmm. things like you know mental math um in crazy detail or um memory and physical attributes um the ability to go through an obstacle course blindfolded by only seeing it for like 30 seconds or you know that kind of thing right and so do they count as superhumans? Would they have to register? Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. <laughs> um, but then again, uh, a lot of those points. Because like, I feel that Reed is opposed to this because a lot of of a lot of the vague, um, undefined parts of the act. Um, how are you going to actually implement this? How do you decide who's a superhuman or not? And a lot of that is actually worked out when we get to Civil War after Stamford, Connecticut, um, the, after the incident there. Yeah. And so I think that maybe it does kind of make sense that he shifts because a lot of his um, intellectually based arguments have been taken care of. Hmm. That's interesting. Okay. When they're fighting Super Adaptoid... Um, we see a mistake that's often made when drawing shapeshifters and they, they have super adaptoid change his hand into like a giant spike ball and it's colored gray. Um, but you know, just because they can change shape doesn't necessarily mean they change color. And, oh, okay. so, and, and like that happens sometimes with, with Reed, 
like read will change the shape and then they'll like color it differently to represent what it's supposed to be. Um, and other, other shape changers in, you know, both Marvel and DZ. Um, so that's kind of interesting. Now, now super adaptoid is maybe a little different. So maybe you can make an argument there, but, um, uh, I just think that's kind of an odd thing that they do sometimes. Right. But there's also a flaw because, um, super adaptoid tries to copy, um, the, uh, the thing suit, which is something we actually haven't mentioned yet. Yeah, um, that's right. With with Ben being human, he actually has like a suit of armor that looks like the thing um, that he can wear to give him enhanced strength and a little bit of protection. It's not nearly as powerful as the as him actually being the thing, but it's better than human. It means ben. he can still right. be an active part of the team. Right. So he puts that on to help fight some of the villains here, um, and the super adaptoid tries to copy his strength and fails, leading him to be punched in the face by the thing. Um, which which yeah. knocks him out, and that's kind of a flaw because the super adaptoid, being a villain designed for the Avengers, has copied Iron Man's suit several times. Oh, huh. so he should be able. So to, he should be able to yeah. uh, copy a robotic suit. So in issue three thirty seven, we begin into the time stream, and we start off with an alarm going off in the Fantastic Four's headquarters. They all run to the end of a dead end hall, and Reed goes, "But there's more." And they find this giant room where there shouldn't be one. And all of a sudden, there's an explosion that blows out one of the walls. Um, leading to this, like, giant time hole. Um, they realize this links to one of their previous adventures with the Avengers. Well, while, while Reed and Sue were with the Avengers. And they realize they have to investigate this further. Um, so they uh, throw together a time sled, which is named the Rosebud 2. A little nod to Citizen, Citizen Kane. Kane. And they gather up some heavy hitter friends, um, Thor and Iron Man, and then they head off. And that's basically where we leave them at the end of this issue. So this is the very first issue where Walt takes on the, the art chores in addition to writing. So he's fully on board with uh, doing everything Fantastic Four related here. And he does a really good job. Yeah. So the anomaly that they discovered is in the in the near future in 1999 <laughs> yes <laughs> which for us is the recent past right but, but uh, if we read further we'll find out that the only reason we got to 1999 is because they it, stopped it yes <laughs> <laughs> yeah that is an interesting concept there and it's it is it's also funny that um walt brings in thor right right away since he just got off of his run on thor and i think and i don't know if maybe this is an attempt to first of all walt wants to do something he's comfortable with right so because um fantastic four is a very different book than thor mm -hmm. and it makes sense to bring iron man along because he's a smart guy who's um you know investigated you know time-based stuff and mm -hmm. whatever but one of the things i talked about with uh ralph macchio is um is about walt's approach to fantastic four uh and so i'll play a little clip of that here mm. uh, as i say one of the things that i i really felt was a lot of writers, as good as they were, never really caught the science of it. A lot of guys were, and, and, and they self-admittedly, even Stan, you know, they weren't really versed in science, astrophysics, things like that. But Walt knew that stuff. You know, he understood, you know, what, what Werner Heisenberg was talking about with the uncertainty principle. That's why he called the engines in the time sled, you know, the Heisenberg uncertainty generators or whatever. Uh. And he knew what was going on. So, um, 
he was a guy I felt could really write Reed Richards and do him well without just coming off as kind of pompous and throwing around a lot of, you know, scientific jargon. He would get it, and Reed would really, you know, become a major, major player in FF, where before it had often been, you know, the thing or the torch who sort of took the lead, and that's exactly the way it turned out. Um, and I was so, so happy, you know, with the entire run that Walt had on that book. So just before they go on their little adventure, Reed and Sue drop off Franklin. With the powers. With the powers. The power, yeah. The powers. Power family. apostrophe. The power yeah. family. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and that's, of course, those are superheroes that are long associated with Fantastic Four at this point. Right. Um, the power pack. And one, just one thing to note here is that the powers' parents are mm-hmm. actually caricatures of Walt and Louise Simonson. I was wondering about that because they have a very different look. Uh, well, not very different, but they have a more intentional look, I think, than than the um, than the Fantastic Four. They look like they're supposed to look like real people. Right. <laughs> yeah, and they are. They And they've always been, ever since the beginning of Power Pack, they've always been Walt and Louise Simonson. Mm. And in fact, the artists who drew the Powers apartment modeled the apartment exactly off, off of the Simonson's apartment. <laughs> that's funny. So that's who we see here too. And it's, yeah. it's actually Walt writing it. He never wrote Power Pack, but he gets to write his himself here. Mm-hmm. So we see the Avengers, um, when they go to, to recruit um, Iron Man and Thor, we see the basement of the Avengers mansion, which is the only thing that's present at this time. And they're, go- they're actually in the process of rebuilding it, which... I guess kind of strikes me as a little odd that, you know, the the mansion has been destroyed for a few years now, but they haven't started rebuilding it. They just, oh, well, let's well, you know, ditch busy. that and go on Hydro Base. They're busy people. But now the Hydro Base has been destroyed. They, they're building the, the Avengers Mansion again, which is the um, now going to be the A-frame, like the literal oh, okay. A-frame yeah. building. Yes, to match the four, the giant right. four building. Oh, exactly. Every superhero <laughs> needs a building that... Uh, Has their symbol on yeah. it. <laughs> Iron Man makes reference to coming from uh, California because he's presently on the West Coast Avengers. And one thing I found really interesting is um, on page 89, Reed talks about his radical dodecahedron being able to send or uh, to broadcast power to the time sled. And at this point in time, 1990 wireless power is total science fiction yeah but we have that now yeah right we have the ability to induce like charging currents uh, for our cell phones if they're set up for that right wow um can you flip to the last page of this issue here yeah. and uh, when they enter the time stream yeah i'm sorry the like the the last couple of right. pages as they're they're gaining speed uh there is just so much kirby and Ditko at work here. Oh, yeah. Um, on page 93, when they first enter, there's an upside-down panel at the top, um, and then they enter the time stream in a very Kirby-ish... Uh, he would totally use that sort of um, whatever, some sort of pre-printed pattern to to in, um, to fill up the space there. Which is the same as what you see through the wall at the beginning of the issue, or yep. not the same, but similar to how it's, uh, how it's an interesting pattern. Yeah, and then there's just a whole bunch of Kirby... Um, weirdness going on yeah. through, and Ditko. It, it's, it's just wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love the use of um, the pink and red to, yeah. to make it look so just bizarre and strange. And how they see it's, it's um, time sled, uh, their own time sled over and over again, right? right. They see all the different possible uh, timelines and futures and 
presents and pasts and stuff all happening at the same time. Yeah. Until um until only one makes it through. Yeah. It's kind of like as we approach the actual like um time aberration, the whole flux of time is is in question. Yeah. And so we see a whole bunch of ourselves and then as we get closer, uh, um all the probabilities compress into one um kind of like waveform schrodinger kind of science there issue 338 is called kangs for the memories or guess who's coming to dinner and uh this one has fantastic for now reaching the center of the time bubble and they meet death's head of all people <laughs> very strange very strange and um and a whole a whole bunch of kangs right which uh, is the cross time uh the council of cross time kangs which yes. i mentioned yeah, um, Death's Head is, at this point in history, in Marvel history, I don't know that everybody know, would know who Death's Head no, is. No, he's very he's, underused. He's a, he's a UK character, right. and he was only really published in the Marvel UK comics right. and didn't really make any appearances uh, in the United States. If I remember correctly, though, um, Death's Head had a rookie card in the 1990 Series 1 trading cards. Oh, okay. Um, along with Fool Killer and the, um, I think Ghost Rider was one of Ghost them. Ghost Rider was one of them, yeah. And maybe Guardians of the Galaxy? Um, I think they had a rookie card in Series 2. Okay. Maybe. Anyway, but I, I think I think he did have a card in the, in, in the Series 1 in 1990. But he was, he was underused. He didn't have his own ongoing title here in the United right. States and that kind of thing. So I, and I, um, I guess at this point also he is um he's a time traveler himself mm -hmm. and like a time cop he's a bounty hunter bounty hunter yeah. who goes through time chasing people um yeah which is a concept you see these days so there's a, a few different um time time police kind of time mm -hmm. time hopping yeah. things that go on with TV in TV and comics page 107 has a reference to death's head Issue number nine, where the Fantastic Four actually make an appearance. There's a little crossover there. And I wonder how many people would actually be able to find that because it actually says Death's Head number nine UK edition. Yeah, because it was only published right. in the UK. Yeah. There On page number 113, there's a reference to Werner Heisenberg. Yeah, and in, in the next issue, um, there is an editor's note about the mathematical papers of uh, Lieber and Kurtzberg. Yeah. And um, it would have been difficult to figure this out in 1990, but quick Google search says there actually is no mathematical paper on time travel by Lieber, uh, by Lieber and Kurtzberg. Because? Because Lieber would be Stan Lee's last name. Real name, yeah. And Kurtzberg would be Jack Kirby's last name. Yep. And that also shows up in She-Hulk um, in the firm, the law firm, Goodman, Lieber, Kurtzberg, and Holloway. Oh, really? Okay, yeah. nice. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, you look at that editor's note, and without the internet, you go, oh, you there just, must be some sort of like scientific just, paper. Yeah, it's like, oh, these guys are even, really thinking things even, through. Yeah, even if you know that that's their, um, like, Stan and Jack's last names, the real last names, uh, you wouldn't really call that into question. No, <laughs> I guess not. Especially if you're an eight-year-old kid. Well, yeah. There's some slight inconsistencies um, to do with the probability field that they have that keeps them from like everything is frozen in time 
um, but their probability field allows them to keep moving at the proper speed. And um, Kang states, oh, if I remove your probability field, it'll freeze them in time, yet Thor throws his hammer pretty far from the sled, and it doesn't freeze. Oh. And also... Um, it must be that... that... Uru metal that it's made of. <laughs> yeah. And then, but then Johnny also flies away pretty fast and Reed goes, oh, I have to quickly extend the field to cover him. But he flies really far and really fast. So like there seems to be, I don't know, maybe there's a time delay that, for, that it takes for it to be affected. But yeah, it just seems like they're trying, like you said, he's trying to um, ground it the ground of science, but then... But you still have to have the superheroics in there. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and I love the editor's note at the end of this issue, um, which says, uh, next, we don't know what to say. We're not even sure if there's going to be, uh, if we're going to be publishing next issue. It may just be all 22 black pages. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I thought it was weird that Dr. Druid makes an appearance in this issue. Um, you have Dr. Druid sort of um, as this time specter with the, the blue lady that's been influencing Johnny and Reed. Oh, yeah. And um, now is this before or after Dr. Druid was on the Avengers? Um, after. After, okay. Yes. And so, um, I mean, I figured out the reason later, but I mean, I'll get to that when we get to that issue. But, okay. Uh, but at the time when I was reading this, I was like, oh, that's kind of weird because I recognize him. Yeah. Um, but then why is he helping this person who's pretty clearly like n trying to negatively influence the characters? Ep issue 339 is called Visit to a Large Empire. And um, we have uh, our crew realizing that um, Galactus is trying to destroy or consume all of time and space with a giant black hole device and they're not able to stop it. Um, but then um, they have this realization that, or rather Sharon has a realization that the Shi'ar Empire um, would have, uh, probably have the tools because they're a huge empire to actually um, take this out. So they take a journey to the Shi'ar Empire, which is also frozen in time and Gladiator ends up fighting them and then teaming up with them. We end off with the revelation that it's not actually Galactus that's behind all of this, but a Celestial. So this is an interesting issue because I th feel like um, Walt Simonson prob uh, may have wanted to have a Thor versus Gladiator fight, but Thor versus Gladiator isn't something that would have happened in Thor when he was on that run. Right. But it's also not something that would happen in Fantastic Four because, like we said before, it's not about the big, huge brawls. Right. And Gladiator's more of an X-Men guy. Right. And Thor's <clears throat> usually not in the world. So it's just, this is a, a battle, a very unexpected sort of battle. Yeah. On page 124 and 125, kind of right in the middle of this issue here, um, there are, are a couple of black pages, which like is like they said, like they said, <laughs> not 22 pages, it's not 22, but it's a couple of black pages. And, um, I just love it. Uh, it's really well laid out mm -hmm. and well scripted at no point. Are you confused about who's talking? Yes. Um, it, it's just really well done. When they get off of the time sled, Reed gives them all portable probability field generators. 
and I mean, I guess maybe there are power limitations, but it's like, well, why didn't you give us to these these to us sooner? <laughs> <laughs> right. You have this whole like, oh, you have to stay on the sled or otherwise you'll be frozen in time. And now I'll just let you go anywhere. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, I think it's worth pointing out that the Black Celestial, as um, this one is referred here, it also goes by the name Tiamat, the Communicator, or the Dreaming Celestial. Um, this is the same Celestial that tries to destroy the Heroes Reborn universe. Oh, okay. And the Guardian Celestial of the... Um, Heroes Born Universe, um, Ashima, um, is the daughter of the Dreaming Celestial. Oh. The Dreaming Celestial is also the same one that stood over San Francisco after being reawakened by the Eternals uh, right before um, Schism in the X-Men and that kind of thing. Right. So the, the X-Men at the time were relocated to San Francisco, so you always see the Dreaming Celestial in the background from uh, uh, Mutopia. Okay. Or Utopia. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Next up is issue 340. It's called Double Trouble. And in this one, the FF discover the Black Celestials using Galactus to destroy the universe out of revenge. Um, this one is a very exciting issue. I thought that it was a, a lot of, um, mm -hmm. um, just a lot of things. There's so much going on. Uh, we, yeah. we don't need to get into all the details. We, we should read the issue. Some great sound effects, and too. That I was going to point that out. There are sound effects in here that you would never, ever uh, hear anywhere else. The sound effects, if you actually pay attention to all of them, they are, they are amazing. Yeah. Um, um, I, there are two things that I wanted to point out. Sure. First one is um, Reed says that, that Galactus's appetite is increasing geometrically. Um, and that doesn't mean that it grows like shapes. Um, for those who are not as mathematically in the know, that would be uh, that would mean that you're being multiplied by the same value over and over again. So it'd be this uh, pretty much the same as exponentially. So it's like he's not he keeps getting twice as hungry, right? That kind of thing, or th or three times as hungry as he was before, or you know, whatever. But it's yeah. the same value. So exponentially would more generally mean following the shape of an exponential curve. But this is more specific, like it's continually doubling or continually it's not a or curve something. at all it's just a constant no no, no it, it is a curve still oh, okay but it it has a very specific property of it's always the same value ah yeah and the other one was um sue apparently dies and reed goes a little nuts and he collapses and says she was everything to me and this is a really interesting statement because it's absolutely true um but there have been times and will um, again be times sort of off and on where Reed has largely ignored Sue and Franklin in the pursuit of science. Yeah. And it's his genius and his intellectual curiosity that often overrides his emotions until he's absolutely forced to confront them. Right. And this is one of those times. And when he is forced to confront them, he just doesn't just confront them. He, it, like, it consumes him at right. that part. And he, yeah, going nuts is something... Um, going nuts when something like this happens is something we see re redo over and over again. Yeah. Yeah. But it's because he's so out of touch with his emotions. Mm -hmm. um, he's a very emotional guy, um, but he's so out of touch with his emotions that it uh, just overtakes him whenever it happens. So the Black Celestial wants to destroy the universe and rebuild it. And he's using Galactus because Galactus is the only person who comes from before the Big Bang. Right. He, he existed in the previous universe, right. so he figures that he's got the power to 
um, to carry himself through to the next um, the next universe as well. Right. Um, if you go to page 164, 65, 66, 67, all four of those yeah. pages, um, some great layouts uh, through this. It really, that because they're jumping through time, the, the layouts and the panel arrangements are very, very different to convey just things happening kind of simultaneously. And also the scale. I mean, the Celestial is huge. Yeah. And, um, and in comparison, these guys are like ants. Yeah. So if you were to try to draw it all on the same page, you wouldn't be able to see one or the other. Right. But the whole concept of I'm drawing the Celestial in the background and the heroes in panels over top really allows you to see what's going on. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a brilliant layout. And even though it's kind of all over the place, you, your eye can still follow where it needs to go. Um, again, Walt Simonson is just a master storyteller. And it's pages like these ones that really, really show. Mm -hmm. Issue 341 is called The Ultimate Solution. Um, we have uh, we have the team uh, flying to Galactus's headquarters, his, um, his giant base, which is called Tatu, named after his home planet, looking for the ultimate nullifier because similar to the well, when Galactus came to Earth, um, Reed gets this idea that the ultimate nullifier could destroy Galactus and thus shut down the black hole. In fact, Galactus, um, in a moment of clarity, seems to hint this to Reed, uh, or rather Reed uh, infers this from, from his look. Um, so they travel through, they get the nullifier, and they return home, and everybody is happy. There we go. The end. The end. <laughs> So did the FF destroy the future? No, they destroyed the time bubble, which was going to consume the future. They saved the future. No, but the future, our future, was destroyed because oh. of the time bubble. So did they destroy that future oh, I by know. causing the timeline to continue? I guess. <laughs> <laughs> now, one thing that's really um, confusing about this issue is that... We find out more about this blue lady. Yeah. And the blue lady is Nebula. Right. But she's not the Nebula from the Guardians of the Galaxy movie or the Infinity Gauntlet, um, who is Thanos' granddaughter. She is um, Ravona Renslayer, a.k.a. Terminatrix. Oh, She okay. is the, um, the wife of Kang in certain time periods. And, and they so, both have blue skin. Is that just their well, alien race? No, she, or Kang she, is wearing a mask. Well, yeah, Kang's wearing a mask. She actually has blue skin, but then it depends on like what time period they're in. So um, Kang um, has several different personalities all throughout time, right? He has like Ramatut, he's got Immortus, um, and he has Kang, and um, we find out later on he has Iron Lad from when he was a teenager. Yeah. But... Um, so the same thing with Ravona Renslayer. So um, in certain times, she is um, just uh, Ravona, um, the, the person. Um, she's also Terminatrix. She also has a future version who is the wife of Immortus, and I can't remember her name right now. Um, but then she um, is married to um, the mayor of Timely, um, <laughs> who, is, who is Kang. 
Timely and, Comics. That's what Marvel Comics no, was called yeah. before. Well, but they they have this they have this uh, town in the far future, which yeah. actually looks more like like a colonial America type thing. Yeah, and it's called Timely, and Kang is the 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 mayor there. Awesome. Yeah. So, so funny. Anyway, um, and she took over for Kang for a while. There's a period where Kang was in a coma, and she took over, and so she was last seen in Avengers two seventy one, uh, November nineteen eighty eight. And she influenced Dr. Druid and the Avengers to help her find the ultimate nullifier so that she could destroy the Council of Cross-Time Kangs. Oh, so that's why she's here. Right. But they never meet. No. So what happened was um, she took the Avengers and they were going to find it. Eventually, they break free of her control. Um, and uh, she was apparently killed um and lost in a time storm along with dr druid which is where they are right now in the time storm. in the time so storm. are they responsible for the time bubble no it's still oh, no, celestial. That's the celestial yeah, 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 yeah but yeah. they're trying to take it or is he um uh nebula still controlling dr druid um and she's attempting to try and take advantage of this that's why she inf- influences johnny johnny right and um so uh She's still sort of ghostly in this uh, time, right? And she returns in Avengers Spotlight 37, which comes up shortly after this. And then the whole storyline concludes in 1993's Avengers, The Terminatrix Objective, where she once again controls the Avengers, takes them to the far future to confront the Council of uh, Cross-Time Kangs Mm -hmm. and eventually destroy them. Wow. Yeah. So, wow. Did... Did Walt know, like he must have known of this history, but he puts this in here. And the whole, this whole Nebula storyline doesn't really have any sort of bearing on the actual story, no. except for the fact that Sue's death snaps read out of his little right. thing that and does, yeah. so, he, so he can do what he needs to do. So he clearly knows what happened in the, in the Avengers comic right. and brings that in probably to tie in Thor and Iron Man a little bit. But then it doesn't go anywhere. But here. it doesn't go anywhere. And then it totally does in this miniseries. And I don't I don't know if he was involved in that miniseries at all. Maybe we can look that up. Yeah. And I don't know if that was the plan or not, because this is 1990 and that came out in 1993. So did they sit on this for three years or did somebody sort of look back and go, hey, we can pick up on that? And what's even more confusing is that the Avengers actually fight Nebula the Space Pirate... Thanos's um, granddaughter this very month in Avengers 318. So in this comic, we have Nebula, um, the time traveler, and in Avengers in the same month, you have Nebula, the space pirate. Hmm. <laughs> so I'm <clears throat> the the editor for Terminatrix Avengers or Objective. Yeah. I mean, the Terminatrix Objective is Ralph Macchio. Okay. So I'm sure that the his editorial oversight was was steering that situation. Right. And next time I talk to Ralph, I will ask him about that. Okay. The next issue, 342, is called Burnout. This is uh, a fill-in issue. Very clearly. Very clearly, because the next issue of the previous of the previous issue says that we're going to launch into the nuke busters storyline, but we don't, we get this fill in story instead. And it is by a guy named, um, it's a written by Danny Fingeroth and drawn by Rex valve. And I looked him up on comic book database. Rex valve only has one comic book credit. It <laughs> this is one. this issue. Oh, wow. Now, 
Um, so obviously, and and just by looking at it, he's, you know, it it's not bad, but it's definitely well, for, not... For the um, first one, it's not bad. Well, it's definitely... I think this is a pseudonym for somebody else. Mm. This is um, right. some other penciler who maybe has a contract with DC or something like that is using a pen name to do this comic. Right. So I don't know who that is. I asked Ralph if he remembers, and he doesn't remember. Hmm. But it's clear, especially because he only has one credit, that this is somebody else. Because right. the way the artwork here is is maybe not as strong as Walt Simonson, for yeah. instance, but it's definitely better than the average person. Right. And if you're going to hire somebody, you know, you would check them out to see if they're going to be good enough first. You're not going to hire them and have them do one issue and be like, nope, you're not good enough, get out. So there is an old rumor... Um, back when there was a Fantastic Four cartoon in the 70s. I was going to bring that up. And um, that cartoon featured Mr. Fantastic, Invisible Girl, The Thing, and Herbie the Robot. Herbie the Robot. And so whatever happened to Human Torch? And there is this longstanding rumor that they didn't put the torch in there because people could see that as imitatable behavior. Right. And um, there was a story, there, there was a rumor that there was a story that a, a kid... Um, lit himself on fire because he wanted to be like the human torch. Right. And I was wondering if this is the source of that rumor. Um, it could be. Uh, that rumor has been refuted because, as it turns out, the rights to the human torch character were actually with a different company. Because there was supposed time. to be a movie. Yeah. And that never actually happened. So they, so legally, they couldn't use Fantastic Four. Um, you couldn't use Human Torch in that Fantastic Four cartoon. So right. it had nothing to do with um, right. the kid setting himself on fire or yeah. anything. I, but um, this one has Rusty, uh, Rusty Collins, mm-hmm. who nowadays is a totally obscure character. Yeah. Um, but he was um, a member, a uh, reoccurring character in the early days of, of X yeah. Factor. With, in, uh, with skids. Yeah. And in the first issue of X Factor, he accidentally uses his powers and burns a woman and has tremendous guilt and, in fact, goes to jail for it. Yeah. And so that's why he guest stars in this issue here. This whole issue seems really weird. Like it very, it feels like a filler issue because you have um, one page of the Fantastic Four return home and the entire rest of the comic up to the very last panel is a flashback. Right. It's obvious that this was just pulled out of a filing cabinet because they really needed to rush rush something here. In fact, there's a flashback within the flashback. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. Well, remember the days when comics had to come out on time? Yes. And um, no matter what what happened, like you wouldn't just delay. Oh, those are the good old days. (laughs) So you stick in a a lame fill-in story. And sorry, Danny Fingeroth, you're a great writer and I really like a lot of the stuff you do, but this one I just didn't care for. Um, in the flashback within the flashback, um, the Human Torch has this disgusting, like, bowl cut haircut. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Very 80s. Yeah. But, um, yeah. Um, but that in that flashback, they referenced the Beyonder, and this would be Secret Wars 2. Yep. Because that's when the Beyonder came to Earth, and he was sort of questioning, what does it mean to be alive, to be, a, like, a, a creature? Um what does it mean to be human? You know, mm-hmm. and and uh, his sort of questioning and uh, different heroes about that. It was sort of a dud story at the time, like especially following up such a big, uh, a big event like Secret War. Right. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, I don't think we need to really dwell on this issue a whole lot. No. There's one uh, <clears throat> reference um, Spider-Man makes to Human Torch coming to his high school to speak. Mm-hmm. And that's a reference to Amazing Spider-Man number three, way, way back. Fantastic Four 343 is called Nuke Busters with three exclamation marks. Yeah, you know this is going to be an exciting issue. Oh, yeah. And we start off with Reed and Sue talking about laundry. <laughs> <laughs> I love the first, the splash page in this, yeah. where it's just like mostly um, Sue is standing in the way. Yeah. And you you see what's going on in the background through her arm or just under her arm. I like the composition mm-hmm. there. Um, so we have them sort of settling in um, back at home as if that last issue never happened. <laughs> yep. <laughs> <laughs> and... Um, and all of a sudden, they start to realize things aren't quite right. I love this. I love the slow uncovering, a right. slow realization. Yeah, and what it and it turns out that they, when they came home, they were actually in a slightly alternate uh, reality in an alternate timeline, where the Cold War is still going on. Joseph Stalin is somehow still alive and in charge of Russia. Yep, and or the USSR. Oh, USSR. Sorry, thank you. Um, and they are like the America and the USSR are about to nuke each other. Yeah. <laughs> and, and they have to bust the nukes. And um, Bush died. Right. So Dan Quayle, vice Who president. Who was the vice president. Yeah. Is now, is the president. now president. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This was a funny issue. I, um, I just love um, those alternate issue ones. One of my favorite Star Trek episodes, of course, is in Mirror Mirror, where they right. um, go into the alternate world where everybody's not what they seem. And they all have mustaches. Yeah. yeah. Evil mustaches. Uh, well, only, it's only oh, Spock. Right, sorry, Spock yeah. just has the goatee. <laughs> but and that's, that's, that's of, what sparks the whole, like, the evil twin has the yeah, facial hair. It's the it's become a, a trope or a meme now. Right. Um, <laughs> Human Torch makes a Twin Peaks reference, which is kind of funny because... They just have a new Twin Peaks starting now. Right. A <laughs> um, couple things I wanted to mention, uh, just in terms of understanding the comic. Um, Sue makes, uh, Sue says, um, you better watch it, Buster, to read. You're cruising. And that would be short for cruising for bruising. Oh, right. Okay. Meaning, <laughs> like, you're asking for trouble. Um, but also, when... Is that a dated reference? Not really. People still sort of say that, but kind of. It's definitely a 90s catchphrase. Yeah. 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 But uh, the the short form of it would probably not be as recognized as the right. whole thing. Yeah. Um, but then uh, Ben f- realizes that they're not in the right timeline when he buys a newspaper and starts reading it. And there's a series of references that sort of hit you fast. And if you don't especially no sports, then you're not going to get them. Now, I don't really know baseball that much at all or sports, so I had to look them up. So he talks about um, uh, Felix Furman of the Cleveland Indians being the leader in uh, league home runs ahead of Roger Maris's 1961 pace. And um, Roger Maris scored 275 home runs, um, which is an average of 30 per season. Wow. And Felix Furman had a career four home runs. Oh, okay. So clearly makes, things are wrong here. Yeah, that makes uh, Three sense. of which were during his five years with the Cleveland Indians. Okay. Um, also, he says the Washington Senators are second place challenging the Yankees. 
and the Washington Senators actually became the Texas Rangers in 1972. Um, there was a lot of mismanagement um, in the uh, in the team, and uh, they were sold many times eventually to Texas. Um, so the fact that they're still around in 1990 is kind of surprising. In fact, I was looking it up, and one of their um, owners actually said, or no, I, sorry, this is a quote from the Wikipedia article. It said, for most of their existence, the new senators were the definition of futility, losing an average of 90 games a season. <laughs> so the fact that they're in the championships uh, facing the Yankees is pretty impressive. Right. And then the last thing is, um, as near as I can tell, the Phoenix Pistols are not actually a team. So to have a team called the Phoenix Pistols being at the head of the National League West would be surprising because okay. there isn't one. It, yeah, it doesn't exist. Yeah. That's funny. Yeah, nice. Yeah, glad you looked that up. <clears throat> I didn't even think to look those up. Yeah. Um, so here's where we see the 80s, uh, 80s and 90s big guns come into play. Yeah. Um, Reed uh, puts together a bunch of EMP guns to... Um, uh, to try and stop the Cold War, and they're huge. <laughs> so, considering the political climate today, yeah, I found this to be really interesting to read. Me too. Today, um, not because of the relationship with Russia, although there's a little bit of that kind of thing going on as well. But um, the the thing about this issue here is that America or Dan Quayle, America decides to preemptively strike. Yeah. Um, they don't bother to wait for the USSR to right. launch their nukes. Because if they do, then they're all going to die. Right. So, so they do it first. Yeah. They're like, hey, we, we're, our intel says they're going to do it. Yeah. Let's do it first. And just thinking about where we are today, no one knows what's going to happen with North Korea right now. And some of Trump's comments make us a little uneasy. This was the one issue where the relationship with Reed and, or sorry, with... um. Johnny and Alicia gets weird. Oh, yeah. Because um, in this reality, um, Alicia and Ben are married. Right. And so he's uncomfortable because she loves him. Ben is uncomfortable because Alicia loves him. Yeah. And Johnny's uncomfortable because um, Alicia is going to Ben instead of him. Yeah. But he's also uncomfortable because he still has all of these mental images of um, Nebula. Right. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot at play here. Yeah. Um, I also love the the use of red and pink. Again, mm -hmm. I mentioned red and pink earlier, yeah. but there's just a lot of red and pink in this one as well. Um, the sky is almost always red in this world, and uh, um, there's just another hint that something is wrong. So mm -hmm. the last few pages, pages of this issue, as we are, as the nukes are being launched, um, there's just a lot of this red and pink to to really make it seem... Uh, to to stand out to make it seem like something's wrong or something's something's happening. Yeah. Um I also find it in, uh neat that they threw in Reed has this recognition that his counterpart from this reality is more practically minded. Um he's applying his science to um create more devices whereas um this Reed from the 616 universe is more theoretically minded. And he spends all of his time coming up with theories. And yeah, he does build stuff, but he spends most of his time theorizing. Oh, okay. Hmm. So the next issue, number 343, is called Nuke... Oh, sorry, 344 is called Nukebusters 2. And that's a reference to Ghostbusters 2, which just came out a little bit before this. 
And in this one, the Fantastic Four prevent the American preemptive strike, and they face off against Joseph Stalin, Mm -hmm. who is actually in a giant robot suit. (laughs) It's... Um, Surprise. Yeah. <laughs> so funny. Again, I I, uh, I like the direction that this goes. Reminds me of Krang. Yeah, in his big robot suit. Yep. For sure. I don't have a whole lot to say on this issue. It's it's a fun read, and it's a great conclusion to this little two-part story. Um, it's um, this one, Sharon becomes a little self-conscious again yep. um, because of what's happening with Ben and Alicia. So if you're not familiar with their relationship, we suggest that you check out the All in the Family epic to get a little bit more of that history. Right. And the End of the Thing series. Yeah. Um, I had a couple of things I wanted to mention. Sure. Page 244 is one of the miscolorings. Okay. Um, Ben's hair is colored blonde. Um, so it looks, it actually kind of looks like Johnny's talking and flying the plane, but oh, it's, very clearly, yeah. it's very clearly Ben. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I mentally made a note of that because i was confused right because it looked like the wrong person the wrong words coming out of his mouth or something like that but yeah but at this point um oh no johnny's not not out of the plane yet but he um he wouldn't be flying um we see a briefcase thing suit which is really cool um which and he he actually uh makes a nod to um uh, to Iron Man, to Tony Stark, yeah, um, saying, "Oh well, he helped me put this together." Right, because that was yeah in the '60s. Iron Man carried his suit around in a briefcase right. all the time, and even back in the '80s, he did as well for a little while. Yeah, um, I think if I recall, but um, yeah. So uh, the thing case is uh, is really cool, and um, one of the things that he says a lot about this uh, suit is that it's his Sunday go-to meeting. Um, suit and that is an old form of like sunday best the clothes that you would wear to church right yeah um what i think is really interesting like at the end of this um they go home and appear in the right time and they seem to completely have forgot about iron man and thor who fell off of the time sled (laughs) yeah and when they arrived home they saw iron man and thor on tv and thought, oh, well, they just must have landed like a couple minutes before us when they fell off the time sled. Right. And so they're fine. But that's in this alternate. But that's in this alternate reality. These are the alternate versions of them. So are they trapped there? Or, are they trapped somewhere else? Or are they the real ones, but they're in this alternate timeline? Right. And then the Fantastic Four left the timeline and didn't take them with right. them. It's just not addressed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, at the very end, um, Ben leaves a uh, file folder on the other reads desk um which is just a uh um it it's the instructions on how to make the robot right the yeah. stalin robot right so reed can the the alternate read can take care of the situation right what i find it interesting is that it says report on replacement of the vice president right which means they're that um there's plans to take over yeah. dan quayle as right just like they did with stalin right yeah or maybe that Dan Quayle actually is a robot. Or already a robot. Yeah, yeah that, that could be too. Mm. It's one of those timelines that they will probably never revisit. No. Issue 345, the cover says, Fantastic Four, no more. And this is called the Mesozoic Mambo. Um, 
the Fantastic Four arrive back in um, what they believe is the present time. That's what everything, all the instruments are telling them. Yet they crash land on an island and find out that there are dinosaurs and that they don't have powers. They meet up with a um, an army troop. Um, but what's an army troop doing in a place with dinosaurs? Right, exactly. And they have to get off before, well, the island is disappearing. So it's clearly placed out of time and now it's returning to its time and they are going to go with it if they can't get off. Yeah. The only thing I have to say about this, it's a pretty fun one. Um, I like that the um, the soldiers don't believe that they're the Fantastic Four. <laughs> yeah. Um, and why would they? I mean, they're no, in a place totally. with uh, dinosaurs. And, and they stuff. don't have powers. Yeah. Right. Um, it's, it's a fun ride. Um, we see... Um, Sharon addressing some of her insecurities and discovering that now that she's human again. Oh, she's human because she oh, right. lost her thing powers. Right, she lost her thing powers. Which means that she's not Rocky, so right. she's human. So, Which is, I like that moment. I thought yeah. it was a really great chance for um, Ben and Sharon to be intimate, which is something they really couldn't have done before. Right, and so she's realizing that, hey, actually, maybe she does want to explore the option of, of being reverted back to her regular form Yeah, um, at, when they get back. Um, the one thing I thought was odd is that in this whole issue, there isn't even one theory, uh, from Reed about why their powers aren't, um, aren't present, why they've lost their powers. Um, they just sort of go, oh, we don't have our powers. But the more pressing issue is the dinosaurs that are trying to eat them. So yeah, maybe he's there, not thinking about but it. But there's, there, there, there's a scene where they're at camp at night and stuff like that. And right. I don't know. I thought that was kind of odd. Yeah. Um, I've got two notes here. One is that I appreciated that Walt Simonson drew the raptors with feathers on them. Right. So that's something that, uh, especially Jurassic Park is a few years after this, so that hasn't come out yet, but those are infamously with no feathers, mm -hmm. um, which is just a, it was just a, it's still a theory. I mean, I guess the people are, don't know for sure, but it's leaning toward the fact nowadays that dinosaurs were covered in feathers. And so Walt's paying attention to that kind of thing here. Right. Um, the last thing is that this island lost in time makes me think of the lost TV show because <laughs> it's same right. thing, pretty much the same thing, just without the dinosaurs. Soldiers and people without powers on well, trapped on a time uh, an displaced island. island. Yes. Right. After a plane crash with creatures. Yeah. <laughs> well, and there are creatures. Yeah. yeah. Kind of like maybe like dinosaurs. So yeah. Very similar. Issue number 346 is called 700 million years BC and then some. And this is basically portions of the island are disappearing and the FF have to figure out a way to get off of the island before the whole thing and them disappear because they don't know exactly where they will. They're, they're theorizing that they are disappearing. The portions of the island are disappearing back to the time that they should be. So if they're caught in a mesozoic era part of the island and they will be trapped in the mesozoic era forever but they can't get off the island because there's some sort of barrier that's preventing them yeah. from leaving this space and then they're attacked by a giant sea dinosaur and yep. i thought this was actually a pretty lame ending um because the dinosaur explodes and then a hole opens in the the wall and they get through but I think, I think some of that is addressed in the epilogue. Well, yeah, maybe, but not clearly. Right? It's, it's not clear that, hey, these mysterious desk people were the ones that actually 
um, opened that and sent them back. Right. So um, is this epilogue, are the people who are speaking in the epilogue, are they the peep same people who have been speaking through the, um, into the time stream when Reed is trying to like ask? No. Like you, through uh, radio communications and such? Uh, oh, and you don't see them ever. I don't know. You only hear their narrations, well, and there's like talking to a couple of different people. And... Well, that there, it it was implied that it's sort of like an that that's sort of like an artificial intelligence. Um, I thought. Oh yeah. In, that, yeah. in just like computer chips, because he talked about like, oh, I fixed this computer chip and I popped it in, and then and then oh, it fried itself. Right. But I mean, that could possibly be. I don't know. Oh, no, no. Um, it's not because that was at the Celestial's base. Oh, yeah, right. you're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Totally. Um, so this is, um, I don't remember exactly when they revisit it, but they do revisit this whole idea of rows and rows and stacks and stacks of desks and bureaucrats as like time bureaucrats who are trying to make sure that all of time is sort of in place where it's supposed to be. Yeah. Um, kind of like the... Um, business version of death's head instead of trying to force things um they're like um just making sure that it stays where it's supposed to be right yeah and they do address that later on and i don't know if it's the next volume or not um if you go to page 288 <clears throat> slash nine uh it's a double page spread and um i don't know if it's the same way today but back then um, a double page spread would be done on one board, just turned sideways. And I think you can tell just um, a lot of his lines are th are are sort of thicker because he's just drawing smaller. So his inking is a little thicker here compared mm. to um, if you just turn, turned either page. Um, you see a lot more detail in the other pages because his artwork is just bigger. Hmm. That's just a small thing. Um, on 292... Uh, we get a little bit more of Sharon's journey and where she's going, as you mentioned before. Um, just a nice moment of uh, her her kind of internal monologue as she's working through things. Mm -hmm. um, and the FF are... Do they... Oh, yeah, they slowly regain their powers at the end of this issue because right. they're once out they of get, the time... Uh, actually, not slowly. It's pretty quick. But uh, once they get out of that time bubble or past that force field, whatever... Yeah, but yeah, you still don't get an, an explanation as to why they lost their powers. No, um, is it because it was back in time before there was such a thing as cosmic rays? Well, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't know. Yeah, they just never address it at all, or how the um, the soldiers ended up on the other. Like they say, "Oh well, we crashed," but how did they crash on the inside of that barrier? It's like a jar. Oh. And the top <laughs> is open? <laughs> right. I don't know. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. It's fun, but it's not super well written in in certain ways. So this is the final issue, the final regular issue in this book. The rest of them are just the annuals. And so at the very, in the next issue, at the end of this, you get a, a hint as to what the next volume is going to start with. Um, and it's just some fun stuff coming mm -hmm. up. It's a fan favorite storyline. Um, the next issue in the book is Fantastic Four Annual number 23. And, you know, before we get into the 
Days of Future Present. Yeah. Let's tackle the, the bonus stories. Okay. There are, there are three portions to this. We have When Franklin Comes Marching Home, which is the Days of Future Present story. Um, then we have two short stories, Cast in Fire, Carved in Stone, uh, written by James Brock Jr. and um, the artist by Mark McKenna. And another one called Beyond and Back um, by Len Kaminsky, Greg Capullo, and Larry Malstead. In Cast and Fire Carved in Stone, we have uh, Dr. Doom, who uh, reveals that um, he um, altered a person um, while they were on Battle World in Secret War to give her powers. Um, her name is Volcana. Two people. Uh, two people, yes. But, but th- we're, this, this one's one only dealing with one. Right. And he also put in, like, um, special uh, implants to monitor um, monitor her. And while they were on um, on Battle World, she actually fell in love with Molecule Man. Yeah. And so even though he has a very big dislike for Molecule Man, Dr. Doom realizes his power. And when... Um, and theorizes that when Molecule Man seemingly died, um, he would have left her with some sort of memory of him, um, which he thinks is imbued with some sort of fraction of his powers. If you want the full story of Molecule Man, that happens at the end of Steve Englehart's run, which I think will be in Epic Collection Volume 18, um, where he merges with uh, the Beyonder. So there's a lot. It's just a, a wild story there. But yeah, he um, leaves a little bit with Volcana. I have two things to say about this story. First of all, Doom has the worst passwords. His password <laughs> is Doom. Well, of course. And I mean, it makes it's very apropos for such an egomaniac as him, but he's totally getting hacked. But who would dare hack Doom? Right, right. <laughs> Maybe that's the point. I'm going to make it so easy because like, nobody would dare Why cross even me. have a password? <laughs> Uh, so he can say his own name. Yeah, I guess. And it's, when he says it, it's got several exclamation marks after it. So it's not just like doom. It's doom. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing is that Molecule Man is seen as being very pathetic here. Um, lots of powers, but very pathetic. Yet, um, for, for like Secret War. But in Secret Wars, which was the recent... Um, uh, crossover storyline. Um, he was actually the power behind everything. Um, the Beyonders are going to, um, or have basically caused Beyonders plural. There's more than one. Um, they basically um, caused reality to start coming apart and destroying itself. And Doctor Doom harnesses Molecules Man's powers with his permission to actually like stitch parts of reality together and it ends up being parts of several universes and that becomes a new battle world don't know why they called a battle world except for secret war yeah um in in continuity doesn't really make sense that they call it battle world not why not doom world but anyway he's in charge um dr doom is in charge molecule man is the power holding it all together so how does molecule man come back because the second story here in this one that we're just going to talk to in a second um takes Molecule Man in a very different direction. This wasn't uh, Molecule Man. um, They say Molecule Man is ejected from the... So, um, uh, Cubic. Yeah. Oh, 
that reminds me um cubic um and mo and molecule so man actually combine to uh, become a cosmic cube and then it says that yes. that he's uh, owen reese molecule man is ejected from oh, that. okay i yeah. see now the interesting thing which i just realized is that cubic yeah is actually in the comics now um taking the form of a little girl she's the power that made uh, mount pleasant which was the shield um uh sorry not mount pleasant pleasant hill um which was the shield uh, pseudo penitentiary where they um, where they used a fraction of a cosmic cube cubic mm -hmm. yeah. to um, change their identities so that they think that they're living in a small quiet town and they don't know their actual identities, um, and cubic is also the one responsible for changing Steve Rogers' past to make him a Hydra agent. Uh huh. And she's presently under the care of um, Bucky in uh, Thunderbolts. Oh, wow. Yeah. So in this, this one, we've moved on to the next story. Oh, yeah, which Beyond is the beyond Black. The, beyond and Back. Oh, sorry, Beyond and Back. Yeah, and I, I really like this one. This one is a kind of an overview of kind of the hierarchy of the cosmic powers. I was going to say the exact same thing. <laughs> it's very well done. Yeah, it's really laid out. If you ever wanted questions about who's who in the cosmic universe and like how they all relate and like who's more powerful than each other. This, this little eight page story or whatever it is spells it all out for you. Yeah. It's not totally complete, but it's good enough. Well, because the, because the Marvel universe has progressed and evolved beyond this in the last, yeah. what is this like 25 years old now? No, I mean like in terms of um, the elders of the universe and that kind of stuff. Oh they're, yeah. They're yeah, not yeah, here, yeah. But, That's true. but, yeah. um, and even, um, but the elders, some of the some of the, um, the the entities like um, chaos and order. You also have um, love and hate. You have uh, they show here eternity, but not infinity. And maybe some of those characters haven't really been come up with yet. Love and hate definitely have though, um, but you don't see them here. But it's okay because they fit into the hierarchy with other people of similar status. Right. Oh, one thing to note, actually, we mentioned how Galactus is from the universe before. Yeah. And um, after Secret Wars, um, the 2015, 16 story, we actually have started in a new universe just without the whole Big Bang portion. Um, things are fundamentally different. Is that where Marvel now started? Um, I can't remember. Or all new, all new, all new Marvel all different. now? Yeah. All new, whatever. All new, all different, maybe. Um, but anyway, um, so uh, we uh, Galactus's universe was the sixth iteration. We have been in the seventh. Now we're in the eighth. Okay. And um, Eternity, uh, if you read the Ultimates comic, um, Eternity has been captured by some mysterious force, um, which is supposedly the equivalent of Eternity from the first iteration of oh. the universe. Um it has influenced um, chaos and order to actually kill the living tribunal and merge to create a new uh, entity that takes its place. So what you're saying so is that this, this comic is really out of date. Yeah. It's, it's still <laughs> they need really to good... update the directory. No, it's true. It's still a really good overview because this is what has been in place for most of Marvel. And yeah. by the end of this whole storyline, you know, things may go back um, to something more like this, but um yeah, it's a great starting place, um, and uh, then you can catch up from there. Okay. <laughs> well, let's dive into Days of Future Present. Oh, do we have to? <laughs> well, you know, I think um, 
if you want, we can give a general overview of all four of these instead sure. of tackling one at a time because we're also yeah. um, running short on time here. Right. Uh, so let's, uh, yeah, let's just kind of give a general overview of what's going on. Uh, I'll try and sum this up as, as best I can. Okay. Um, <clears throat> you can tell me if I'm missing anything important sure. or if there's anything incorrect. So in Fantastic Four Annual 23, Franklin from the Days of Future Past timeline, mm-hmm. and Days of Future Past, of course, being the 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 Chris Claremont story from the from X Men uh, in the seventies. Yeah. I can't remember what issue number exactly, um, but um, he he comes. He uses his um, alternate reality warping powers to make his way to this timeline, um, and he's all grown up because this is from the future. So he's traveling to the past, um, which is our past, I guess, because things branch right. out or something like that. Um, and he's trying to find um, a way to stop the future from happening. And he's being chased by this guy named Ahab mm-hmm. um, and his hounds. And they're they're trying to kill him. And Ahab, I guess, is like a time bounty hunter as well. Just yeah. like Death Head. Death well, Head. he's... Um... Uh, yeah, he he was one of um, Apocalypse's horsemen in the future. Okay, and um, he his job is to hunt down mutants and okay. kill them. So Franklin's there. So of course the Fantastic Four are involved. Right. Um, but in the future, in the days of future past, Franklin is part of the New Mutants. So. Uh, that's why the new mutants are involved in this one as well. Yeah. He's also in a relationship with Rachel Summers. Yep. Um, Which ties in because with, Rachel Summers is the daughter from the future. Right. So she's Scott and Jean. Right now she's in Excalibur, and um, but we don't have a tie-in issue from that. She rushes off to um, uh, be involved, and that ties into X Factor because she's Scott and Jean's daughter from the future. Yeah, and this is a, a very important issue actually because this is the issue. Where Jean Grey finds out that, um, or and and Scott, I guess, yeah, find out this issue being X Factor Annual Five, right? Yeah, um, yeah, finds out that she's that um that they have a daughter from the future who's right. grown up and living with them, uh, in the present day. So that that's really interesting. Um, we also find out about Rachel's past in this yes. one as well, which is very important, um, because. We, we know about her hound scars and you know that she comes from the future, but I don't think we knew that she came from the days of future past future like that. I'm not timeline. sure of the details of that. I feel like we do know some of it, but maybe not all of it. And this ties a little more yeah. together, but, but Ahab yeah. is a villain who transforms mutants into what he calls his hounds. And they're just basically monster kind of versions yeah. of them. That they're they're mutant trackers. Yeah. And so the idea is, um, they have the ability to um, sense mutants right? so that they can go and uh, capture them. And so Rachel has gone through this process. In fact, she was the first person that he tried out his experiments on. Right. And so that's why she gets the hound scars. And And actually her outfit that she wears at the time, uh, at this time, is the red with the spikes on it. Right. Which is what all the hounds wear. Right. Yeah. Why she would still wear that after, I don't don't know. know. But... So yeah, the this one there are many issues that that we have here. There's um many problems. Many problems. <laughs> yeah, there are many problems here. One of them is that um the storytelling is just so clunky and over oh, all yeah. over the place. 
Um, part of it is um, part of it. There's the issue where uh, um, um, the New Mutants Annual and the X Factor Annual are published out of place. Right. So there are a few little continuity things that in when you're reading one issue doesn't follow through to the next. X Factor is supposed to be part two, um, according to what's on the t- on the cover, and the New Mutants is part three. But then they publish them in the opposite order. So yeah, it's just um. And then there, some of the artist choices. Like I like John Bogdanov. I think he's a really good right. artist. I love him on Superman, and he did great work on Power Pack. But this issue, I think it seems just like a little rushed. He, his work was a little hard to follow. Um, he did the art in the X Factor Annual. Um, and he he works with Louis Simonson a lot, and Louis Simonson is the one who wrote the X Factor Annual. Um, so it's not a surprise to see them together, but um, not his strongest. And I would say the same with. Um, uh, Jackson Geis, who did the art for the Fantastic Four annual, um, his uh, like he's he's a great artist as well. But again, this one is not his strongest stuff. Yeah, there's one um, on page three twenty four. There's one picture of the Fantastic Four, and the perspective on that is just messed up. Uh, yeah, it's really really not good. Uh, just in general, like the story doesn't flow. Even if you put the um, the New Mutants annual where it's supposed to go where, or, or where it was intended to go, it, it just doesn't make sense because at the end of Fantastic Four, he sees ship and goes, that's not supposed to be there and heads off towards it. Then you have New Mutants. All of a sudden, he's on the opposite end of the city and they fight and there's a resolution and he takes away Franklin's powers Yeah. the end. Yeah. But then you go back to X-Factor and then they have a battle um, right. right by ship and ship disappears and because Franklin made it disappear they have a battle and they have a conclusion and he ends and he sends um, uh, he takes Christopher um, Cyclops' son away yeah and then in the last issue it's just like this jumble of trying to wrap everything up yes. and so it's like it doesn't it doesn't really matter which order you um, you read those two middle issues the story just doesn't line up well and I wonder if that's because they had to, they published, because one was so late. So maybe the late one, they did some last minute changes in order to um, make it flow a little bit better. I wonder if or you maybe, would, maybe if you they read were... them in the, the opposite order. Well, I, I, I read um, X Factor first. I went Fantastic Four Annual, X Factor, New Mutants. Oh, okay. Yeah, I know. It, I read it, it. I read it the way it's laid out here yeah. in the book and it still, it still didn't. It didn't make sense. Yeah. Um, also, I cringed a little bit at the cover to New Mutants Annual 6 because it's a Rob Liefeld cover. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's it's um, it's classic Rob Liefeld. You can just put it at that. There's, a, there's nothing <clears throat> really wrong with it. It's just his style. Um, we'll point out that there are all of these little spiky rocks coming out from the ground right at the very bottom to cover up everybody's feet. <laughs> The other thing that I wanted to mention about the New Mutants annual is that one character who's only referred to as Blue, because she's Blue, I don't know if that's her name or not, she has teleporting abilities. Um, She is very reminiscent of the Exiles Nocturne. Yeah, Yeah, I thought so too, but it's not, apparently. Really? Yeah, I I looked it up on like a Marvel wiki or something, and they're not the same person. Really? Yeah, so she's part of... um, a, an alternate New Mutants that Franklin brings from the future. Right, consisting of um, Franklin, um, 
Doug Ramsey slash Warlock, which is called Magus. Yep. Um, and uh, there's two others, Blaze yes. and Cudgel. Right. And I don't even know if they mention the names. They on. don't mention, they, they mention Blaze's name, but not Cudgel's name. But I, I looked them up and that's what their names are. And Rachel Summers and Rachel was Summers. part of that team as well. Right. Yeah. We could talk about a little bit about the X-Men as well. This, right. this one all wraps up in the X-Men and um, Storm comes in here. Right. And, uh, Storm who's a, a child. Yes. And because the orphan maker has turned her into a child. Nanny. Um, the, sorry, not the, yeah, the orphan maker's nanny has turned yes. her into a child. Right. And so she's in the process of growing at a sort of a rapid pace because there, she's getting back to where she was. Yeah. So she's mm-hmm. kind of a preteen, I think, right now. Yeah, so Gambit um, makes reference to her having an adult mind um, now. So she's sort of um, progressed to the point where she has most of her memories and knowledge. Um, Also, um, Forge is in this story. Yeah. And he makes, uh, or Cyclops makes reference to one of his devices removing Storm's powers. Um, which happened several years before this, but um, he hasn't really been, Forge hasn't really been fully in the picture uh, for a while. And um, he never is really fully no. <laughs> in the picture ever, except for the time he was on X Factor, I suppose. Right. Um, and so people are still sort of mad at him about that, um, Cyclops specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, but that led to Storm's Mohawk phase, which he actually recently went back to right. for a while because um, there's another big change in her life when she divorced um black panther and xavier died and yeah yeah so in this issue franklin takes um baby christopher right into the future right but this is not and so christopher is christopher and nathaniel this is not um gene's child this is this is madeline Madeline Pryor's child so and and they call him Christopher Nathan Charles Summers um, here in this story, but I'm pretty sure everywhere else his name is Nathan Christopher Charles Summers. And so this is the kid who eventually goes to the future and comes back to the present as Cable. Right. Who is in the story? Who is in this story, but this is not the the moment when he goes to the to future. To grow up. That's to, right. So it's just, yeah, it's just, some, there's some weird things here. Yeah. yeah. Um. Although the one thing that I really like about um, the X-Factor annual um, is that Beast does a really good job of summarizing what's going on in X-Factor right now um, in terms of what's happening with Gene, what's happening with Cyclops and the kid and um, all of that. And it's good for people who are coming in just for this miniseries um, because then they know what's going on with, uh, with these characters. With X-Men Annual 14, where we're wrapping everything up, Ahab says Laddie Buck, which I think is interesting because they make a point of having Banshee say that in an earlier issue. And so I'm wondering if at this time they didn't have, they didn't really know Ahab's story. And so they were planning on making Banshee turn into Ahab in the future. They also make a reference to Cable looking kind of like Ahab. So I wonder if they're trying to set that up as well, which might be like, Oh, he Franklin takes young Cable Christopher. Christopher into the future, and he becomes Ahab. Yeah, yeah I, I don't know. Yeah. Later on in Excalibur, they decide and clarify that it's not either of them. It's actually, I believe, Pete Wisdom, who becomes Ahab. Oh, in the future. Oh, okay. Um, 
but at this point in time they wouldn't have had that so i don't yeah so i don't know if they're trying to hint at things here wow um also i thought that the explanation of franklin being like young franklin's dream self in combination with um rachel's powers was kind of weird and they talk about oh well franklin's been in a coma so you know his powers only work his like tattletale powers only work when he's asleep that's why he's been asleep this whole time except in the other issues he hasn't been asleep <laughs> right he's in, in fact <laughs> and he's talking to himself yeah <laughs> so the like the the whole thing is an editorial mess and like the writing doesn't really fit well it's uh i don't know it was not a good way to end the whole yeah collection um but um the point of the epics is to collect it all right good and, or bad which and, is why we got that silly fill-in issue as right. well and it's not actually like it, it sets up some pretty important stuff for the future yeah um it just does it in kind of a poor way um so it's it's important but it's such a slog to get through now my question here um my question here is when we get the X-Factor, New Mutants, and X-Men epic collections that get to this era, are they going to reprint all four of these issues Again, in all of those things? That's interesting. Um, what they've done with some instances is they'll reprint the main, um, they'll reprint the whole story in one epic collection. Right. And then in the other epic collections, we'll just, they'll just do the one, the issue. one issue on that, mm. of that character. Interesting. So I can see that printing the whole thing of the Fantastic Four... Uh, printing the whole story in Fantastic Four here is probably because Franklin is the main character throughout. Right. It starts in the Fantastic Four, and the Fantastic Four are sort of the main characters throughout. The others sort of come and go. But the Fantastic Four really don't do anything no. by the end. They are just kind of there. Well, nobody in the does anything in this story, right? Yeah, they're just they all just all stand around and let things happen. And um, so I can see in New Mutants that just printing the new mutants issue and then in X, X factor just printing the X factor right. issue because um these characters don't have any purpose before their own annual yeah um in fact the X-Men annual definitely just print the X-Men annual in X-Men because they really don't have any purpose in the three annuals that come before it at all right except and, for Banshee I suppose well, and Banshee. The, Banshee and Forge are the one only ones who really are a major presence throughout all of them besides the Fantastic Four. Yeah. Um, the New Mutants, they like show up at the final battle in the X-Factor um, issue, but don't do anything in there. Right. Um, the X-Factor are not at all in the uh, New Mutants issue. Um, so, oh, then the other thing is the Fantastic Four is the only one that actually seems to have a to-be-continued feel to it. Right. All the other ones have a very clear, this is the end of the story. Which is part of what makes this so difficult <laughs> right. is you have three ends. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, and in the X-Men annual, we have this weird story where, uh, this weird plot where Cyclops and Invisible Woman are turned into hounds. Right, yeah, and just then, for some added yeah, drama. Yeah, yeah, it's, I don't know, the whole thing's kind of weird. But anyway, yeah, it makes sense to put it all in Fantastic Four because it's the only one that really, that really follows seems to through the yeah, whole time. Yeah, really seems to uh, start the story and then wants to continue it, and the other ones are very isolated. Well, and that's just fine, because I'm not up for talking about this whole storyline <laughs> three more times on this no. podcast, should that no. ever come up. Uh, 
Good. Well, that's our whole episode there. Um, any closing remarks, closing thoughts? No, I'm excited to see which one they release next. So uh, the next time that you, Eric, will be back with us, I think we're going to tackle Moon Knight, the very first volume. Which I'm really interested in. Um, I've read all of the modern Moon Knight stuff, but I haven't actually read through the old Moon Knight. Cool. But he's always been a character that's fascinated me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll <clears> see <throat> if uh, classic Moon Knight holds up to your expectations there. <laughs> nice. Well, thanks for joining us in this episode. No problem. Yeah, we'll, and we'll see everybody next time. <laughs>